This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here again is Dan Loney. And welcome back to our number two of Knowledge at Wharton. As we come to you today from New York City, we are at the Forbes Small Giants Conference uh, in Lower Manhattan. Great to have you joining us here today. Well, for those of us that are in our 50s, we remember the importance of what Radio Flyer has been in our lives. It has been a standard in wagons, scooters, and tricycles for younger kids. I obviously was one of the people that had a little red wagon when I was a kid, thanks to my mom and dad. And after uh, a period, Radio Flyer is making a great comeback from a variety of its products, and part of it goes to the culture within the company. Robert Passon is the CEO of Radio Flyer. He's also the grandson of the founder and has had this company in his life's blood for a long, long time. Great meeting you. Thank you very much for coming uh, and joining us today. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And it's great to be a customer of yours because I guess that's part of the story with with Radio Flyer is that there is a generational element to why this company has been successful for such a long time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Radio Flyer is one of the few products that, uh, as a grandparent, you can give to your grandkids and you can share the exact same experience that you had when you were a kid. And I think that's one of the things that people really love about Radio Flyer is reliving their own childhood when they experience it again with their kids and grandkids. So we were asking you before this, I'll ask you on the air, why Radio Flyer? Yeah, well, my grandpa who started the company was an Italian immigrant, and he was a carpenter. He knew how to make things out of wood, and he came to America in search of a better life. And he always connected with the promise of America and uh, with industry and design and forward-thinking things. So when he was picking a wagon, a name for his wagon, he turned to the two greatest innovations of the day in the 20s, the radio and the airplane. So I think if you were naming the wagon today, it'd be called something like Quantum AI Dronester. Yeah. What were the most vivid memories you had of, of the company as, as you were growing up? Because, I mean, it, that's a unique perspective, especially for somebody who really has been involved in this company your entire life. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first day I, I visited Radio Flyer, I was five years old. Um, my dad brought me to work with him, and I remember walking into the front doors and walking around the factory with my dad, hearing the sound of the loud punch presses and smelling the paint. And, you know, to me, it, it seemed like some sort of magical Rube Goldberg machine that was cranking <laughs> out these shiny red wagons and sending yeah. them into the world to bring joy to families. And that's kind of the moment that I fell in love with Radio Flyer. So then you get come on as the CEO, and it had that time had come after a little bit of, a, I guess, a downward cycle for Radio Flyer. So as you go in as CEO, what are some of the things you're thinking of initially that maybe need to be tweaked or changed? Yeah, well, in my first year on the job, I mean, I didn't start as the CEO, but um, we were confronted with a really significant change in our category of wagons where our competitors came out with plastic wagons, and we were the right. traditional traditional steel and, and wood wagon guys. Um, so very quickly, we saw that the game had changed, and we needed to change. And we had missed that because we weren't talking to consumers a lot at the time. We were more of an inwardly focused manufacturer which had worked great for 70 years, but it wasn't working anymore. So we had to get really good at listening to consumers and doing research and really understanding what our brand means to people. Um, And that's what really got us going on developing a a product development team that could help us really generate a lot more new products and and really fuel our growth. I I read that I guess one of the things that that the company did was even putting in almost like a sidewalk, a test sidewalk, mm-hmm. so that people, you could bring the wagons down the sidewalk to kind of get a feel of, of what was going on. Yeah, we call it our test track. So our test track is a sidewalk. Slightly, <laughs> slightly different than an automobile. Exactly, walk, yes. yes yeah. It's a little smaller. Right, yes. um, it's got a driveway and a sidewalk. And, and we do. We bring kids and, and parents on site, and we do a ton of product testing. And some of our greatest insights come from not just talking to consumers, but just watching what people do. One of my favorite stories is when we started doing a lot of research, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 
we would ask people, tell me about the radio flyer you had as a kid. And, of course, they would tell us about their little red wagon. Yeah. But often they would tell us about their radio flyer tricycle. And yeah. we'd say, oh, wow, well, tell me, what did the tricycle look like? And they would describe it. They'd say it was red and steel and shiny and it had a big chrome bell. It was a radio flyer. But the thing was, we never made tricycles. So they were describing the tricycle they remembered having as a kid, but it wasn't our brand. But they associated right. our brand with it because it's, it's such a uh, closely linked visuals to a, a red wagon. And so then we did something really smart. We came out with a tricycle. <laughs> right, and, right. and we gave the consumer all those visual design cues that they remembered and then layered our brand on top of it. So now when people see that classic trike from us, they say, oh my gosh, that's the Radio Flyer trike I had as a kid. And then we used that product as a springboard to become the number one tricycle brand in the country. And actually, that's our largest product category now is tricycles. And 15 years ago, it wasn't part of our business. Is there something that, that you have noticed in terms of the usage of a lot of your products with kids now from maybe what you remember 20, 30 years ago that's significantly different or is it fairly similar it's just gaining the information that you really needed to have well with wagons it definitely is different so wagons were were you know 30 40 years ago were used primarily as a, as like a ride on a thing that a kid would actually propel themselves maybe put one knee in the wagon and push along with their other leg but now wagons are used primarily to transport kids that's yeah. how they're bought for kids when they're much younger um, most wagons are bought for kids when they're under the age of one, so they can even barely sit up yet. But then people are so excited to get that radio flyer wagon and um, pull their kids around the neighborhood. And then as the kids grow up, they still do a lot of that imaginative play with the wagon, but it's it's used in many cases like a stroller to start out with. And I, I remember in the one that I had for my twins, for a few years ago, it's putting seatbelts yes. in, in, in a in a in a wagon, which I don't remember that being something that when I was younger, <laughs> I don't remember any seatbelts. No, there either, were no seatbelts e- either in the wagon or in my parents' car either. Exactly so, right. right. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I mean the seatbelts was a direct you know thing for when mom we'd say to moms, "What else do you want in the wagon?" I say, "Oh, it'd be great if you put seatbelts in here so that when I'm pulling my kid, they can't stand up and fall out of the wagon." We're yeah. like, "Okay, that makes perfect sense." So now we have seatbelts. You're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney here in New York City uh, at the uh, Forbes Small Giants uh, Conference. Uh, we're talking with Robert Passon, who is the CEO of uh, Radio Flyer. So what is it about the development process now? I mean, you mentioned the, the, the plastics coming into this process. How much do you have to balance that with kind of the history of the company where the metal object has been really the signature mm-hmm. of, of a lot of the products. Yeah, we, we don't view them as mutually exclusive. I mean, you can still buy the original classic. Uh, it's our model number 18 wagon that people would imagine when they hear Radio Flyer. So it's that classic steel wagon that's uh, even the shape is trademarked on the wagon. Um, yeah. So we still have that, but we also have our newest wagon, which is made out of uh, a steel frame and fabric, and you can fold it up and put it in the back of your car. The wagon folds up, and it's got a canopy to shade the kids, and it's got cup holders. And so we're, we want to make sure that we're going to always stay true to our heritage and what got us uh, where we are, but we're also going to make sure that we're staying relevant to what consumers want and need so, today. So you're having to be innovative. I mean, we talk about innovation a lot, mm-hmm. and, and I think to a degree some people would be surprised that when you have a company that has that much tradition, you still do have to be innovative at the same time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have the brand, which is wonderful, and, and what people's um, relationship, consumers' relationship to the brand, which is wonderful. And then we, that's our foundation that we build on. But I told you the story about the classic tricycle. Well, we also have a tricycle that folds up, and we have another tricycle that essentially starts up out as a stroller. And you take as the kid grows up, you can take components off of it, and then you're left with a tricycle. So those are more modern interpretations of, of a tricycle, and those are some of our best sellers too. And I saw on the website that you guys also have a partnership now with Tesla. Yes. Yeah, that's been really fun. So we... We approached Tesla almost five years ago because we wanted to create a Tesla battery-powered car for kids. Um, But we didn't want to just create the car for kids. We wanted to create the whole Tesla experience, but miniaturized for kids. So just like uh, you can't buy a Tesla at a car dealership, uh, you can't buy our car at a retail customer. You go on our website and Mm -hmm. you... 
Um, you design it just like you design a Tesla. You pick the color. You pick the specs. You can, even put wow. your, you can even put your kid's name on the license plate, and then we ship it to people's home. And it's been a huge success. What's, I mean, the idea to want to do it, because when you think about the, the industry of toys, a lot of people, a lot of companies want to produce kind of one thing that will resonate with a lot of people. This is taking the resonation of a variety of different things and bringing it in to one car. It's almost flipping the, the cycle a little bit. Yeah. I mean, when we looked at this category, so battery-operated cars for kids is a category in the toy industry, yeah. um, we weren't in that category. And so we did a lot of research on what can we do that's better and different. That's what we always try to do when we enter a new category. And we found that there, the, the biggest complaint that we had from parents was that every time their kids wanted to use the car, the battery was dead. And because they use traditional batteries, they take a long time to charge and they don't hold a charge. So we said, well, we could solve that problem with a lithium-ion battery. And then, wow. we, then we approached Tesla and put the whole package together. So, I mean, realistically, you have the benefit, it seems like, of if you go back 30 or 40 years of having customers that were kids or you know, parents buying for their kids, and now those kids have grown up and they're buying those products for their kids, but it probably has to rely on the quality of the product and the experience that each one of those kids are having to come back 30 or 40 years later and have that faith in Radio Flyer to, to do business again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the brand equity that we have. It's been built all over generations, and it's all been through the quality of the product. I mean, we have a very high net promoter score, but and we don't do any advertising. It's all just because of the consumer experience with the product. How do you think you're – I mean, how do you continue that on moving forward, or is it almost a natural process now because of what Radio Flyer is? Well, no, it's not a natural process. I mean, we have to really focus on making sure that – um, you know, the more complex products we get into, you know, all these folding mechanisms and everything, we have yeah. to make sure they're completely safe. It meets all of the child safety standards, and we, that's, we take that very seriously. Um, and, and we have to make sure that the product is the quality and durability that people expect from us. Robert Passon, the CEO of Radio Flyer, joining us here on Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132. So, so let's get into the, the foldable part of this because that's an interesting change and I guess it's more so because of portability for the parents mm-hmm. to be able to take these products either going to the beach or going to the park and, and packing it away uh, in their car or wherever they're going. Correct? Yeah, yeah. it just makes the product a lot more convenient. Um, you, can, you can store it, like you just said, in the car. You can take it anywhere. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that consumers have been asking for for a long time, but we just, it took us a while to figure out the right way to, give a, to create a folding wagon and have the right quality. Last year, Radio Flyer celebrated its 100th anniversary. That's obviously a, a special point in a, in a company's career. Uh, that being said, what does that milestone mean, do you think? Not looking at the past, but really looking at the future of the company. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, we, one of the things that we talked a lot about during our 100th anniversary year was you know, that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. So everybody at the company now is we're the beneficiaries of all the work that went before us. And with that, I think goes a certain sense of gratitude and responsibility to make sure we're building it in, into something even better for the years ahead. So it's something that personally makes me very motivated to make Radio Flyer into the greatest company we possibly can become. It sounds like that you are the type of CEO who really not only values the employees, but you, you have to listen to them as well for things that they see that maybe your CEO or, or your board may miss it at, at a point in time. Yeah, we, do, we have a very collaborative environment. We do, have, uh, we do 360 feedback. Um, we ask for f- uh, feedback from, we have a new, our, our new product lineup for next year that we have uh, out on display right now. And everybody, you know, can give feedback on the product. So it's a constant iterative process of getting that kind of feedback and dialogue with our whole team. What's this experience like for you here today being at Small Giants? One of the things I love about uh, a meeting like this is the chance to hear other people's stories and how they're building their businesses. And it always gets my creative juices going. It re-energizes me. And I always walk away with lots of ideas uh, for back at work. Got any secrets that you'd like to release on the air for, you know, what's that next product? I mean, but in general, though, there have to be areas where, as technology has developed, that you see that that are things that you can incorporate in what what Radio Flyer would like to do. Yeah, um, 
Yes. I mean, we, every year we come out with a slate of maybe 20 new products. Um, right. And in all these different categories that we're in, mostly things that kids can ride on is, is yeah. really where, what we do. Um, and every year we have a number of failures. We know that a lot of our products aren't going to work. It's just the nature of consumer products. Uh, but every year we also have a few that are really, really successful. And one of the things I've learned after doing this for over 25 years is I don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. <laughs> nice meeting you. Thank you for coming over. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Robert Passon, the CEO of Radio Flyer, joining us here from the uh, Forbes uh, Small Giants Conference in New York City. The world of micro beer brewing has exploded in the last couple of decades. Companies large and small popping up in towns across America, and that has increased the amount of revenue in the industry. It also means the success on a variety of levels for those companies. One of them, Massachusetts Bay Brewing, makers of Harpoon Ale and other brands, which has seen a strong level of growth, but is also putting that success into the hands of its employees. Dan Canary is the CEO and co-founder of the company, and he joins us here in our studios in New York City. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Likewise. Nice to meet you. What is it about these events that, that you find most attractive, most intriguing to be able to come here and, and obviously see a lot of just phenomenal minds coming together? Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, my dad used to always say, if you go to a conference, if you can come back with one or two good ideas, it will have been worth it. And I have found that over the years, whether it's an Inc. 500 conference, I go to a tug, something called a tugboat conference, I get inspired by what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And I come away and I learn things. And I, things I'm overlooking or I've forgotten or I've never thought about. And so it's time well spent. Maybe at this stage of my career, I'm 58. I've been at 32 years now in, in microbrew slash craft brewing. Yeah. And I'm really t- spending a lot of my time managing people and helping to inspire people, et cetera. And so get, getting out of the office on occasion and meeting fascinating people who are doing amazing things in their lives, it's, it's a win-win for me. What do you think it was about that part of the industry that, that you're in, in micro and craft brewing, that really resonated with the consumer over the last couple of decades? Interesting. You know, I gave a talk on Friday, and I was going back to our found, the founding decade in the 80s, you know, when... I graduated from college in 82, backpacked around Western Europe after college, and like, was like a kid in the candy store about beer, because I had yeah. l- always loved beer, but from, in the U.S., it was all light yellow lagers, coast to coast. Beer yeah. had been commoditized. And over there, you're like, oh my goodness, all these different styles, the history, the flavors, et cetera. Why in the w- number, world's number one consumer market do we have no choice? So came back and started reconnecting with some college pals and taking a look at it. And we also looked at other consumer products, coffee. Starbucks was just coming east. There was another company in Boston called Coffee Connection where my father said, people are not going to pay $2 for a cup of coffee. You're like, <laughs> no, you know what? If it's distinctive and people think it's better quality, they will. We saw it in the ice cream market. We'd also seen that imports from like 72 to 85 had grown from 1 to 10 million barrels or 1% to 5% of the beer market. That's big growth. Yeah. So we're like, you know what? Consumers seem to be saying we want more choice. We want more flavor. We want more diversity. We want better stories with our products. That's what inspired us to try to do this. Could we change the American beer market? And I think that that trend has just continued and it's deepened and broadened across all kinds of consumer product categories over the last 30 years. It's still amazing to me uh, to see uh, there's a microbrew near where I live, and when they come out with a new type of flavor of beer, to see a line of 300 or 400 people waiting in line to get that specific batch, I think that's an incredible kind of element of this industry, which I don't think gets talked about enough. It's really something. And there are a couple of examples of breweries up in Massachusetts that have had that kind of success where they sell everything they make full retail. And it's an incredibly profitable business if you can get that. So you're right. And it's, it's that beer's always had that badge element to it that, you know, especially if you were a young male, you kind of, you, you were saying something about yourself yeah. on the beer you drank. Yeah. And, um, but it's gotten to such an extent now where people take pride in their local, their neighborhood brewery. And again, the great thing is beer is a perishable product. So the fresher you can drink beer, typically, the better that it is as long as the breweries are you know, adhering to certain you know, QC standards. So how, how is the industry doing right now? And I ask that because we see lots of stories these days about the growth of spirits and, and wine. So 
I would imagine there is still a strong segment of the population that will always be there because beer is kind of ingrained in us, right. in, in our culture. I talk about it as the world's second oldest profession, right? We, people have been drinking <laughs> beer for 5,000 years. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the industry is, you know, it's, it's slowed way down. So the, we had years of explosive growth from 2010, let's say, through 2015 or 16. And yeah. there's really been a slowdown since. We're low single digits right now. Right. So in that, you're starting to see more and more closings. The openings are continuing strong, but you're definitely seeing some breweries that are running into some real challenges right now. Right. And breweries that got out too far over their skis, they borrowed money, et cetera, they're the ones kind of getting into some trouble. Now, we've been around long enough to have seen this before. In the late 90s, we had a boom-bust cycle. We purchased a brewery, a second brewery in 2000, the old Catamount Brewing Company up in up Windsor, in Vermont. Vermont. Yeah, yeah. They had, they had, there were two breweries starting in New England when we were starting. Catamount was one of them. David Geary in Portland, Maine was the other. In 96, Catamount spent $4 million on a new brewery 10 miles south of White River Junction, Vermont, that we bought from their bank for $1 million in 2000, so four years later. You're starting to hear of stories like that again with bankruptcies and breweries really hitting a wall. And I know I'm hearing the same thing in the craft spirits industry, that there are just so many. Now there are over 7,000 breweries. When we started, there were about 120 right. in the United States. So 7,000. They all have five IPAs. That's 35,000 <laughs> IPAs coast to coast. I mean, it's like, how can it not be a, you know, a train wreck? So how do you go about the process uh, of distinguishing the companies, the uh, other companies, the other brewers, the other micros out there that you would like to work with and bring their product to New England or bring it to other parts of the country? Well... We want our products to be in New England and the other parts of the country. So, but we will do collaboration brews with certain brewery partners that we like. We've been doing that for a long time from Europe and and the U.S. Right right now, we're doing a really fun partnership with a non-brewer. We're doing a partnership with Dunkin' Donuts. I saw that. The Harpoon, the Dunkin' Coffee Porter, which is going great for us. We've done something with LLB in the not too distant past. We're doing something this year with Polar. Beverage from Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. I'm from Worcester, the leading seltzer maker in the Northeast United States. We did a, I know, a UFO line of beers. We did a blueberry lemonade flavored with polar. Oh. So it's good. So we're having a lot of fun with different creative companies. Key for us is are they good people, kind of like we hope we are? Yeah. And is, do they have a good brand that resonates, somehow ties in with us? You know, we're a New England company, and so we want to um, tie in with New England brands if we can. But even you see the, the, the partnership with, with Dunkin' Donuts, which you know obviously is in the food industry, but something differently like L.L. Bean, which is such a, 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 a well-known brand, really right. has nothing to do with, with beverage in any way, shape, or form, but there is that connection of brand, That's correct? right. And again, our motto for years has been love beer, love life, harpoon. So we really are about an active lifestyle, making beer part of an active lifestyle. Right. And Bean, for example, plays right into that. Dan Canary, who is the uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, Massachusetts Bay Brewing, joining us here on Knowledge at Wharton here in New York City at the Forbes Small Giants Conference. What is then the growth? How do you go about that build-out of growth? Because now, I mean, harpoon is is well-known, I know, along the East Coast, and I'm assuming a good bit out to the West Coast as well. How do you continue to build that growth when you do have all of this other competition that's kind of out there in the marketplace? Yeah, you have to be relentless and focused on your brand. That's what it comes down to. And that's a change in in craft beer. There were years where basically you just kind of of put it out there and it would sell. The whole category was growing, and the rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, that tide stops rising, and then you're looking around and saying, gosh, now there are, you know, used to sell in states where there might be two or three other craft breweries, and now those states have 85 craft breweries. So what, what, how are you relevant in yeah. Georgia, for yeah. example, yeah. if you're a harpoon from, from New England? And that's where you get focusing on brand. You better have great people. You better speak clearly and concisely about why people should try your beer. One thing for us is we've always been about getting people to visit us Boston and Vermont are two terrific tourist destinations. Our brewery in Boston is right in the water, right across the harbor from Logan. We get over a half million people a year who come and see us at yeah. one of our two breweries. Yeah. That's the way that you do it. How, how, was, how was your company affected by the recession? And I ask that because so many companies felt that at different levels. And when you're talking about something that is, a, a to a degree, it's a tradition. Beer is a tradition mm-hmm. in America people really had to kind of keep an eye on their cash. And I wonder if there was an impact that yeah, you felt. It's, no, it's very interesting. I was, I was saying this not too long ago, too. We had had a slowdown, like an 07, 
You know, we'd had kind of a nice 20, you know, 15-year run at that point. Yeah. And we noticed a slowdown to the point we got concerned saying we maybe need to do a little brand work. And I'll never forget because we terminated the work because all of a sudden in 08, things turned up, if you can believe wow, it. Wow, right before. They, no, right in the middle, like in the yeah. fall of 08, all yeah. of a sudden things turned up. Beer is an affordable luxury, as people call it. So it's like I may not be able to go out to dinner again or maybe I can't go to the Red Sox game, but I can get a six-pack. And I think we saw some of that during, during the recession. And I think the recession hit, it was a terrible recession, hit different parts of the country differently. Yeah. I think, like, I remember over my lifetime, you know, certain recessions, the 88 to 90 was terrible in New England. Um, I think the Great Recession was worse in other parts of the country than it was in New England. So how much then within that New England market was it felt more so in and around the Boston area where the finance markets are a little bit stronger in comparison with up, right. in, up in Vermont or Maine, something that's right. like that. That's right. And healthcare education stayed pretty steady, right? So, yeah. um, But again, I do think times get tough. People start to look to those old standbys, and beer yeah. is fortunately one of those. What's the importance of the relationship you have with your employees in terms of Obviously, they are, as much as anybody, they have to buy in. And, and this is an industry that you, know, you, you want to have everybody on deck kind of moving the, moving the path no, in the same question. way. You know, everyone's in the people business. They either realize it or not, but we all are, especially yeah. in a market with 3% unemployment. Yeah. We became employee-owned, as you alluded to earlier. In 2014, we borrowed money, bought out my partner, and gave 48% of our company to our employees. So we'd always had a really engaged culture. Yeah. This just took it to another level. Now everyone, all 200 of the full-time employees, have a stake in the financial future of the companies. I taught them, it's an opportunity. Yeah. That's all it is. But in this day and age, people appreciate having that opportunity and saying, gee, I have a shot at this. It's not just a couple of people or a venture capital firm or something from some far-off city. So engagement, um, a sense of ownership, a sense of belonging, they're essential in this market. Again, in the top about the 500,000 visitors we get a year, yeah. how important is it that our employees greeting those folks appear happy and satisfied, you know, motivated and everything sure. else. It's, it's a tremendous advantage I, for us. I heard the story about you mentioning the, the investment that the employees then had, which I think is an incredible story, and, and I'd like you to relate because from what I understand, you brought everybody together and you basically said, hey, now you guys are 48% yeah. owners of, yeah, of, of the company. We've been working on the, the deal for two or three months, and we brought everyone together in the July of... 2014 into our beer hall in Boston. We shut the beer hall for the day, for, for the day in the evening and said, we want to have a company meeting, talk about the year, the second half of the year. And I think, you know, people had gotten a sense. They'd seen some people, strangers around the office, gray hair I've got, my partner had. There have been deals happening every week. A lot of breweries have sold out. Crap breweries have sold out, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I, it was a attentive harpoon crowd because the taps are open and they're only a few feet away and people were behaving themselves. And I said, you know, you're probably wondering what's going on. I, I, I do want to introduce you to the new owner of a large <laughs> minority stake in the brewery. And you could have heard a pin drop at that point. <laughs> and I said, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and shake the hand because you are now all collectively the owners of 48% of Harpone. It was a great night. Great night. What the, and you mentioned it a little bit, but what has that meant in the preceding, or I should say in the past two and a half years, in terms of the expectations that the people have now of the company? It's great. It's it's. The conversations are all way more meaningful now because yeah. you kind of get like we're all in this together. We're all I'm the CEO, yes, but the, I talk. My fellow employees are also the owners of the company, yeah. And so we're just more deeply engaged. And am I? I wouldn't mislead you and say 100 percent everyone gets this and signs on to it. No, that's not human nature. Yeah. But if before your pool was 50 percent of the people are really on board, well now it's 70 percent of the people. You really do broaden that circle of people who kind of get what you're trying to do and buy into it. Dan Canary of uh, Massachusetts Bay Brewing joining us uh, here on Knowledge of Wharton on Sirius XM 132 here at the Forbes Small Giants uh, Conference. Uh, I mentioned partnerships and, and uh, partners that you will work with. I mentioned before, you're working now currently with a friend of mine, friend of yours, yeah. Kevin Euclid, yeah. who played with the Red Sox. Who, after the, world, his, after, the world champion? Yeah, Sox, I know. Can we go know. into that he, for a little to, bit? Or? Had to get that yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. You're happy. You, you've Very got the blue happy. jacket. You don't have the red tie on today. But, but talk to us about that type of a partnership because Kevin, after his baseball career, got into the, into the beer industry, and it's really something that, that he has resonated with. And, and obviously yeah. with his Red Sox background, it probably makes it a, a good partnership. You know, one of the most gratifying things about this stage in my life is that most of the good things happening in my professional life are based on great relationships. Kevin's a perfect example of that. 
we just got introduced through a, a third party on a charity thing that he was working on that we said we'd love to donate the beer for. This is like 10-something years ago. Yeah. One thing led to another. It's like, oh, you know, Kevin really is into beer. Would you talk to him about beer? Sure. Why wouldn't I, I talk to anyone about beer? Yeah. Just we developed a relationship. It just grew and grew over time. He started you know, talk to me regularly about this idea of opening a brewery out in California. One thing led to another. We became good pals, and he opened the brewery in California and uh, said I'd, he'd love to start selling beer in, in Massachusetts. So could we brew beer for him in Massachusetts? So we said, sure. So we're now contract brewing Loma beer in Boston for sale in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Yeah. Went out to his opening party in California. It's just been wonderful. He's a, he's a great guy. He was a great baseball player. Yeah. And he's a hell of a brewer because the beer they make is really very good. And they also do coffee. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just been kind of fun. And, you know, Boston, you know, Boston's a sports-crazy town. So having someone who's into beer and was a great Red Sox and is a great guy, it just kind of works on a lot of different how, levels. How much does that contract work go on with a company like yours? Because I can think of uh, one in the Philadelphia area, Yangling, does that to a degree because they've tried to expand down into Florida to, you know, to kind of right. build their brand out. So right. how much uh, of that actually goes on within the industry? You know, a decent amount. Certain breweries do a lot of it. You know, the FX Matt Brewery up in Utica, New York, a great old family-owned brewery. They've been in the contracting business for a while because they kind of had to, and they also have their wonderful Saranac brands. Um, we don't do a lot of it. We work with our great friends at, at the Great Lakes out in, in Cleveland, yeah. and we work with Kevin, and that's pretty much it. We're not looking to get large scale into the contracting business. We really do focus on our own brands. But if there's right. a compelling personal reason that jives with business reasons for us, We'll take a hard look at it. But there is quite a bit, and I think, you know, as you're looking at the industry, and there's a, in, increasing amounts of excess capacity now. Sure. So all of a sudden, it's yeah, like, you, you know, like the Cisco deal that was announced not that long ago. That's the, yep. the Nantucket Brewer just sold out to basically Budweiser through the Craft Brewers Alliance. And they were contract brewing up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And it just kind of makes sense for breweries because they need the capacity. They don't want to spend the money on new equipment. Right. And then that partnership can frequently lead to something more significant. So this is a watchful time for the beer industry right now in terms of maybe 100%. being careful about overextending yourself even farther. 100%. And watch the pricing on products. And you see the 15-pack market with founders then you know, certain breweries taking down price. It's, it's something we watch because that's a signal for industry health, right? Pricing right. is one of the most profound signaling mechanisms out there to say how strong is this category dan nice meeting you Likewise. thanks very much dan canary uh who is the ceo of massachusetts bay brewing company joining us here at the forbes small giants conference we will take a break we will come back with more from the uh, forbes small giants conference here in new york city in just a minute you're listening to sirius xm 132 business radio powered by the wharton school Many people want to live a healthier and more sustainable life. And to that point, companies are looking to produce products that support that mindset. But it also means that in many cases, there must be investment support for those ideas as well. Jared Gonski is vice president of business development for Lojas Capital, one of those firms looking to support those ideas with investment. And he joins us here at our broadcast location in New York. Nice meeting you. Thank you nice very much. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for having me. I guess give us first kind of an overview of of what this area looks like right now in terms of how important investment is for a lot of these social ventures that are out there right now. Sure. Um, okay, so first of all, let me just uh, give a brief introduction to LOHAS Capital. Uh, essentially, LOHAS stands for Lifestyle, Health, and Sustainability. And we are here um, as an advisory firm to organizations in health, sustainability, and social impact to help them raise capital and raise awareness. Um, so your question about how does, the, how does the space look for organizations you know, in health, sustainability, and social impact, yeah. um, it's hard for them sometimes to, um, it's easy for them to get started, but hard to raise capital and kind of take it to the next level. And that's why we're here is to really support them, get, kind of get through that, that, you know, that chasm or that, that valley of death that you hear about. And the importance, obviously, is to be able to kind of make that, to cross that bridge, to be able to bring that idea from literally idea stage mm -hmm. to bring it to actual impact stage. Right, right. I mean, we will work with organizations that are already having impact. You know, yeah. they've kind of, they've demonstrated that their model, you know, uh, drives positive social benefit. Um, but then now, now they're looking to take that and scale it. 
so that you can have you know you can you can leverage you can multiply that benefit. Why specifically uh, health and sustainability? Why are, why those two areas to begin with? Um, well, I guess there's there's really two reasons. One is just personally for me. Um, you know, I've the last twelve years I've been in the sustainability space, and um, you know, just really have been passionate about doing something that has value, that has meaning. You know, I want and we're you know we're only here once, and I wanted to spend my time doing something that that I think has value. Um, and then not to say that I mean you know general business has value as well, sure. but you know to have um, to, to drive a, a positive uh, you know benefit for society. But there's part of that uh, also where both sides of that that w- point really come to play is that you can have something that has a social benefit but also has a, a financial benefit to it as ex- well. Exactly. And so so initially when our organization started, there was uh, a lot of focus around crowdfunding actually. Yeah. Because uh, we saw crowdfunding as a fantastic way to to mirror raising capital and raising awareness. It's sort of a you know like a, a uh, our, our CEO calls it like a no cost marketing initiative. Sure. You yep. know, essentially, if you see it just as marketing, then you know if any money you bring in is icing on the cake because you're you're really bringing uh, this offering to the market in crowdfunding, and so everyone's having to research it and learn more and more about it. Um, you know, and, and so even if they decide not to invest, they just spent a lot of time learning about your your product and your organization. Right. Um, plus, because these are inherently, you know, they inherently have a, have a positive social benefit. They, you know, they they have that emotional appeal which aligns with with crowdfunding. You know, it's kind of if it um, if it benefits the crowd, if it yeah. benefits society, then society can help support it. You believe so, that there there is a significant change in that mindset, let's say in the last decade or so, where people are more aware and they are willing to accept these as investment options for themselves instead of the traditional style of investment that maybe many people have done over the last hundred years or so. Yeah. So you're you're speaking about the, the impact investing space. Um and that has grown dramatically uh, in the last yeah, five to ten years. I mean ten years ago no one even no one knew what that meant. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was in sustainability, it was purely initially around environmental. Um, and social was, was sort of all philanthropic. Right. And then, um, you know, there's been a shift in, in, in yeah, within the last five years around um, you know, investing for financial returns and for social impact returns. Uh, and, and to some degree, that ties into the United Nations and their their SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, there's a kind of this this overall um, sense that that the, the old paradigm of, you know, your investments, uh, you know, you, you invest to make money and then you, you, you give you give to charity and, and donate your time, you know, and volunteer. And when, like th- th- those two worlds are not coming together and they're saying, you know, I want to invest my time and my money yeah. towards things that are going to have, you know, that are going to drive positive social benefit and have strong financial returns. And the other part to it is the fact that these are really mindsets. And we obviously for this show talk about it in the scope of here in the United States, Canada as well. But this is a global change. This is a global Mm -hmm. mindset change by people in in countries all around the world right now that understand that this is, this is an important component at this point. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, (sighs) I get the sense that the younger generation, and this is being, you know, this is being led by millennials, right? Right. Um, and so I get the sense that there, people realize that the government is not going to, you know, it's not, this burden is not just on the government. Like, I mean, they're, they're not, it's not like, they can't, they can't drive the kind of changes that we need. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to have to come from, you know, kind of gr- grassroots. It's going to have to come from, you know, everybody. At large, and and there's going to have to be investment uh, that that goes into I- into it. Um, you know, to well, how does that change then? Then some of the economic dynamics of, of these projects and of companies as well, because in part of this is individuals wanting to do this. Part of this is companies wanting to not only impact their own firm but other firms and other issues as well. Yeah, I guess we have to. Okay, so we have to look at 
two different things. There's, there's in the, on the corporate side, there's CSR, right? So the yep. corporate, so, you know, corporate social responsibility. Yep. And, and so you have businesses, you know, trying to do positive things, you know, and, 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 and be stewards uh, to the environment, to, you know, to, to, um, you know, just they want to have a more inclusive workplace. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they want to have a, a healthier environment for their employees. And, and the employees are growing to really expect that. And so they're just they're meeting the needs of, of their employees. Um, on the impact investment side, that's, that's really different, right? That's about, so, so CSR is kind of, you know, in a way it's less bad. It's kind of like, you know, we have our business and we just wanna, we want to, to run it the best way we possibly can. Mm -hmm. In the impact investment side, it's organizations that are embedding impact in, into, their, into their core fabric. It's, it's their reason for being. Right, and so they're, um, you know, from the get-go, their their mission is to have impact, and then they almost they have to find a financial model yeah. uh, that will support that will support that. So the types of companies that you're working with on the investment side are are really what the mid-sized to small-sized companies that have this mindset, but they're not able to, as you said before, to to have the capital in many cases to be able to push. A lot of these initiatives are yeah. I mean, so they, right, they've proven the model out. They're looking to raise sort of one to five million. Uh, you know, they're kind of in that sweet spot, ready to scale, um, looking for that capital to take to the next level. L but um, let me let me speak about a particular client because um, yeah. I think I think their story is really phenomenal. Um, so they're 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 called CDC Deposits. Uh -huh. um, and initially, we started with them. Um, you know, we we, ca we had a conversation around crowdfunding, but immediately changed directions because we realized that crowdfunding wasn't the right fit. Right. Um, so what they have is a uh, a, a uh, cash deposit for impact program, and so what that means is working um, with uh, ba basically they take money from from the big banks. And they spread it around into community banks right. uh, in 250K increments to ensure FDIC insurance. And then they actually embed a, a charity element where they're making donations. W with each tranche of, of money that goes to the community bank, they're making a donation to a local nonprofit that works with that community bank right. uh, to kind of embed uh, engagement between the bank and the nonprofit. Right. And then they have like a, you know, a center for social change and they have a number of nonprofits that they house in the sort of co-working space. And so there's, so, so when, we, when we came to talk to them, all of this nonprofit element, that, you know, the, the donations, the movement of, of cash into communities, you know, the revitalization of communities with, yeah. with capital, yeah. um, that was going on behind the scenes. Uh, for this organization has been around for 15 years. They've, um, uh, they've, they've, they're actually managing about 1.7 in billion right now in cash deposits. Right. And they were having all this impact quietly behind the scenes because they didn't want to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. Because, because 10, 15 years ago, charity was, was seen as a, you know, was seen as a, a bad word. If you're, if you're focused on interest rates yeah. uh, on, on maximizing interest rates, but now with, you know, with the, with, with this movement towards impact investing and, and you know, the, the fact that investors are actually looking to have, you know, find positive financial returns and impact this is a beautiful story. And so we've, we've actually built their marketing presence around this social impact story, telling all the, you know, sharing all these positive stories that they've accumulated over the last 15 years. Jared Gonski is the Vice President of Business Development for uh, Lojas Capital. You're listening to Knowledge of Warden here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. You, you mentioned the crowdfunding element. How much uh, is crowdfunding still used in a lot of this work right now? With Lojas Capital? With Lojas Capital, kind or of, just in general as well? I mean, for us, it's kind of a mix. Um, we, were, we were early. Uh, you know, the jobs that came out, and we were, we were there you know, within six months, uh, you know, trying to, you know, use this new uh, vehicle available for us. Yeah. And, and I'd say, you know, we probably were a bit too early. Um, you know, we're, we're, like our CEO makes a joke. We're, we're kind of the only ones crazy enough to, to be in this space, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and so we're, you know, we, we recognize that we're a bit early, but we know that ultimately, you know, crowdfunding 
you know, will be more and more the way to, to, you know, to make direct investments into organizations. It's just, I mean, you know, kind of the, the traditional model is this quiet behind the scenes, you know, uh, you know, backdoor meetings and things. Yeah. And, and that's not the way that, that's not the most efficient way to, you know, to raise capital. You, you need to, you know, bring it out into the open, share it with the masses, um, you know, and actually we'll tie to the small, small giants event. You know, they're having a discussion right now about, you know, raising capital and, you know, is, is, you know, quote unquote, is private equity evil, right. you know, cause they, they, they take away, uh, you know, they, they take, you know, they'll, um, you know, they can often ask for, you know, to be on the board and, sure. and, and, you know, have this heavy influence. And with crowdfunding, because you're scattering, you know, you're raising capital from, from so many different people at, at small levels, you can still maintain, uh, you, you know, ownership and, and control. So in many cases, the, the companies have benefited from the fact that crowdfunding in general, when you look at the public, has had a positive connotation. It obviously has a, a great impact giving back to society in general. It's not necessarily an area where companies have dipped their toe in the water before, but now they can because of this positive impact that, that crowdfunding has had in general. Yeah. I mean, when you look at crowdfunding, you have to kind of break it out into different areas. There's, there's philanthropic crowdfunding. Yeah. Uh, like, so GoFundMe and, and you know, this sort of, you know, uh, you know, I, someone, my, you know, a family member is sick. I need to raise capital. Sure. Um, please help. So that's, that's one form of crowdfunding. Then you have the rewards-based one, which is, you know, your Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And, um, you know, you're sort of, um, you want to be the first one to get some new prototype product. But then you also have uh, WeFunder and SeedInvest uh, and, and these other crowdfunding where you're, you're actually raising equity. And that's what I'm saying in that, in that sort of $1 million to, to $5 million range, which is, you know, a, a, a solid investment. Uh, you know, that can, that can help these organizations really take it to the next level. What does that mean then for a company like Lojas about, about taking not only with, the, with the, your current clients, but other clients in the future as well to, to be able to really grow this out even farther? Um, well, I, I mean, you're at a certain point now, but obviously the expectation is that this is going to continue to grow for, for the next several years, correct? Yeah. I mean, I think it leaves us in a really fantastic place, you know, to be, you know, to be the knowledge experts, uh, you know, as crowdfunding continues to grow, especially in this social impact space where we're, you know, one of one. We're joined by Jared Gonski, who's the vice president of business development for Lojas Capital. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, we, we've heard, obviously, the, the variety of stories about VC and about how, you know, obviously, in many cases, it is it is so big right now. Uh, this industry, from what you said, feels like it has the opportunity to really grow exceptionally large in the next decade or two, correct? Yeah. Are you, are you talking about crowdfunding yeah. or impact investing? Well, both of them. Uh, both of them, they play yeah. off of one another. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're both, right, they're both on a, uh, you know, a very high growth curve. I mean, they're, they're growing quickly. Impact investing is, is in- incredible. I mean, you'll, if, you go to invest, if you go to a meeting now, that's been going on for a few years. You'll hear it across the board that they've doubled in size every year. I mean, it's true exponential growth. Yeah. Right. And you saw that, you know, you, you saw that, you know, in the dot-com era, you, you know, you see that with, you know, with blockchain I mean, there's a lot of, you know, trending areas and impact investment is absolutely one of them. And it's an expectation now where not only people think that it's a good idea, it's a necessity in many cases, correct? Yeah. So if we go back to, Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about this this morning, right? There, there's sort of um, that there's the requirement. So that there's like the, the baseline. At the baseline is uh, is that less bad element, right? So yeah. uh, so my investments, um, you know, they they can't go towards guns. They can't, you know, they, they um, you know they have to re- reduce carbon. Like you know, there's screens, right? So yep. there's 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 screens, and so you filter out the ones that. Um, that don't align with your values, right? Yeah. Um, that's the first screen. That's like the, that's like the table stakes, right? And then it's how do I actually drive impact, right? So the, so the first screen is remove the things that are negative from my portfolio. Yeah. And then the next thing is how am I going to use my money to actually accelerate, you know, growth in, in, the pos- in these positive things that I believe in, Yeah. Uh, you know, that, 
Yeah. What's the expectation then that you have for coming to an event like this and being part of this of, of with all the other small giants as yeah, well? Yeah, so... So small giants is a, this is really a great way to to hear what some of the leaders are doing. I mean, so right. So because we're in this investment space, we're 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 working with small companies, yeah. right? And these are the small giants. So they have a lot of lessons learned, you know, lessons to to learn from, uh, you know. And and so we hope to use those lessons for for Loas Capital, but then of course for our clients as well. It really is a big community, is it not? When you think about the impact that you're trying to have. Not only on Lojas, but on other companies as well, but the society in general as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, I guess if we all kind of step back and think about the impact that we, that we, that we have, you know, there's, there's the things that we can do as individuals, but, you know, there's that multiplier effect. And so that's what I loved about Lojas Capital is that, you know, if we help companies that, that, have a, that, that are supporting you know that are directly supporting society yeah then each one you know if we help 10 companies and each one of those companies are helping you know a thousand people yeah okay now we've got you know then ten thousand people that have just been benefited you know and then it's can, a multiplier exactly it's, it's a huge multiplier it's a beautiful effect. multiplier right yeah uh, we're talking with Jared Konsky of uh, Lojas Capital. You're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. Uh, what are the expectations that, that you and Lojas have in, in terms of the partnerships that you have built out and future ones that you want to have in, in, in really building out impact to what it potentially could be in the, in the next decade or so? Um, yeah, I, I, see, I see us working. Um, so we've been... You know, we've been focusing primarily on supporting businesses, right? Ventures that are looking to grow, that are looking to scale, mm-hmm. um, and really connecting them with with the financial community. I think the future for us is going to be working more with with the financial side. Uh, you know, so the high net worth individuals, family offices, foundations, and helping them find these ventures, right? So there's you know, there's kind of, you know, you have, you have the, these impact ventures, um, and there's a lot of them that are doing wonderful, and, and, and they, can't, they can't find the money. And then you go to the, you go to the, the financial meetings, yeah. and they're all looking for impact investments, and they can't find ventures to, to invest in. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so we're, you know, we're sitting right here in the middle, and we're just, you know, we just got to start making these connections uh, so that, you know, so the companies that... Uh, that deserve funding are getting it, and the companies that are you know and and the and the financial uh, players that are looking for investments can can find them. Jared, nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. Okay. Thank you very much, Jared Gonski from Lojas Capital. That's going to do it for uh, our time here at the Forbes Small Giant Conference. We will see you back in Philadelphia tomorrow with another edition of Knowledge Warden here on Sirius XM One Thirty Two Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.